3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, Inez. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7 o'clock on the dot. Uh, it is, what day is it? What day? The Thursday, the 4th. Thursday, well, it's a Thursday. Fr- it's a Thursday. <laughs> but it's the 4th of May, so uh, may the 4th be with you. Oh, how beautiful. I know. You know what? I hate that I said that. In the, in the week leading up to this, I was like, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it when you're not on air like get it out of your system and then I set it on air so now we can we can get that out of the way um, as usual we have a great show lined up for you today so we're keeping the May Day spirit going with a couple of our segments this week first up we're going to bring you stories from inside a warehouse strike where National Union of Workers Delegates and Strike Leaders Kurtley Tuala spoke about the dramatic three-day polar fresh warehouse strike that uh, hamstrung the coal supply chain in July 2016 and brought workers together for uh, in a win for fair working conditions. So this is from the archives, highlights from the Union Activism and History Conference in October 2016, and our thanks to Annie from Stick Together for the audio. And just a reminder as well that in November 2019, the National Union of Workers and United Voice actually merged to what is now the United Workers Union. Um, yeah. And then we'll hear from Emma Hearn from the National Justice Project, who is the Associate Legal Director. And they join us to discuss the New South Wales Supreme Court decision in early April to uphold the validity of fines issued against protest organisers under COVID restrictions, raising serious concerns about freedom of political expression and the right to protest. Yeah, and after that, we're going to replay a segment of this week's episode of Diaspora Blues, which was a May Day special with former 3CR presenter Hope Matumbu. And Hope speaks with Ayan about issues of gender, work, and parenting from her perspective as a community nurse working in an Aboriginal community-controlled health organization who's returning to work after parental leave. You can catch Diaspora Blues on 3CR on Mondays from 2.30 to 3 p.m. And then you'll hear from George Conjero from the Save the Preston Market Action Group. He joins us to speak about a recent report about the Victorian Planning Authority recommending significant protection of the Preston Market Precinct and what this means for the fight against private developers. George has been involved with the campaign since its inception in 2021 and lives in Reservoir with his partner and two daughters. And... Uh, just wanted to uh, remind people, oh, I wanted to, to plug something, actually. So I last week got the chance to attend the fabulous harm reduction uh and opioid response training that is run by Harm Reduction Victoria. It's free. It's run on Zoom on the first Monday of every month. You can go to Harm Reduction Victoria's website, which I believe is hrvic.org.au. And it was just fantastic. So clear, so straightforward. You basically go on, you learn about how to respond. Uh, you learn about two different uh, common, uh, what, what is it called? Two different common forms of naloxone. Um, 
And uh, so there's a nasal nasal version and there's an intramuscular version. And then they send you one of those when you specify uh, which one you'd prefer to administer after the training. And it's just a really fantastic way to take care of your community. You know, you might not need to use it, but naloxone lasts for a long time. So if you have something on you, you're out and about in the community and you're concerned about someone. Um, this is yeah a really useful thing to sort of have in your back pocket, both uh, the naloxone and the training capacity. Um, and also on that note, I want to remind people that an independent consultation is currently going at the moment um, to have your say about uh, the proposal for a medically supervised injecting room in the city of Melbourne. So to trial that and you can uh, you can head to engage.vic.gov.au forward slash now I can't find the link. You know what? Just go to head to engage.vic.gov.au and the city of Melbourne is uh, inviting people to have their say on um, having uh, another uh, medically supervised injecting room uh, with the other one being in Richmond. And Nez, I'm sure you have a lot more to say about how important this is. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's important to remember that, you know, a lot of us will probably, you know, consume AOD at one point in our lives Um, but the real stigma that is ongoing um, in every sense of the word is often with injecting drug users and they deserve as much right to dignity and choice and safety um, than any of us do. Similar if we're going to a music festival they deserve also the right to have the choice to participate in life the way that they would choose Um, and also if you're not sure about medically supervised injecting rooms, they also have connections with like sexual health clinics and other health services, and they are part of the community. So they're just actually a bar- um, an entry point to get like different types of health access to. So they really benefit the community, and you know, especially with having um, having your say. We know that a lot of people are going to be really vocal against this. So it's really important that those of us who really, really care about this and, and care about our communities and, and understand the right to self-determination um, that people that use drugs have, definitely just put put yourself out there because we know the people who are going to be the most vocal. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you want to find out more, you can look at North Richmond Community Health's medically supervised injecting room where, you know, that was that was the first trial. It's been immensely successful, immensely important for the community. And, um, you know, they've got plenty of information on their website as well about, you know, how that's gone. So before having your say as well, have a look at the impact that it's had on people's lives too. A hundred percent. And also, if you didn't know, you can actually book a free tour. I believe it's on Friday. It happens every week. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really amazing what they've been able to do. So if you do have a chance to do that, I'd recommend doing that as well. But yeah. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 27th. Oh, no. Thursday, the 4th of May, 2023. With a week to go before the budget is handed down, the Albanese government has proposed a 25 increase to rental assistance for people on welfare payments, falling short of the recommended 50% called for by advocates. 
Homelessness Australia's Kate Colvin emphasised that an all-inclusive base rate raise is crucial to supporting those on welfare payments as many people on youth allowance reside in shared accommodation without a formal lease and therefore do not qualify for this support. The speculated raise of $50 a fortnight for people over 55 on Centrelink payments would also leave 680,000 others on JobSeeker and youth allowance excluded. The targeted support for over 55s has been criticised as discriminatory, with poverty affecting people of all ages on the Youth Allowance, Job Seeker and Youth Disability Payment, and has been condemned by organisations including the Older Women's Network of New South Wales. Next in headlines, listeners please be advised that the following two headlines contain mention of suicide and sexual assault. If you need immediate support, you can call Lifeline on 131114. For mob-only support, you can call 13YARN. And for Kids Helpline, 1800 1800. Um, you can also tune out for the next five minutes if you think you have been impacted by the following news. A series of leaked emails describe the disturbing lack of support for children detained in Unit 18 of Casarina Adult Prison in Western Australia. Unit 18 has been used for youth detention after a cohort of children were transferred from Banksia Hill Detention Centre last year. An extremely high rate of suicide and self-harm has been recorded within Unit 18. In 2022, between July 20th and August 8th alone, 13 self-harm incidents and three attempted suicides were reported. The leaked emails detail repeated cancellation of psychiatric appointments due to insufficient staff and a lack of confidential rooms to carry out appointments. The emails also outline that Unit 18 detainees have been subjected to rolling and ongoing confinement orders, also due to the lack of staff. Psychiatric care is cited as formerly contributing to the children's out-of-cell time, discouraging many who already spend the majority of their day in cell confinement from attending appointments. This evidence of further harms to children in detention comes after years of ongoing advocacy from hundreds of health, medical and community organisations to end criminalisation and instead provide preventative support and safety for vulnerable children. Also in news headlines and listeners, please again be advised that the following headline does address sexual assault. A report by the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission released on Tuesday has found that Victoria police officers continue to use their position to initiate sexual relationships with vulnerable members of the public while on duty. The report focuses on three incidents of predatory behaviour taken from 27 internal investigations between 2019 and 2022. In one, a Victoria police officer sent inappropriate photos to a child in state care. Another details an officer on duty initiating a sexual relationship with a person affected by family violence after responding to a call-out. The third case study reports an incident of grooming by a senior police officer of a junior officer who is experiencing mental health concerns. The IBAC report provides a number of recommendations in light of its findings, and some of these include improvement to integrity management under training for investigators, minimizing underreporting of predatory behavior, and ensuring that the Legal Discipline Advisory Unit provides advice in line with Victoria Police's zero-tolerance to- policy regarding predatory behavior. The report also recommends a more comprehensive assessment of the harms caused to the victims of predation from officers on duty. And I'll just quickly repeat some of those uh, some of those crisis lines. So if you need immediate support, please call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. 
For mob-only support, you can call 13YARN on 139276. That's 139276. And you can also call the Kids Helpline on 1-800-551-800. That's 1-800-551-800. And finally in headlines, on Tuesday, Human Rights Watch reported an order from the Supreme Court of Nepal to the government to recognise same-sex foreign spouses of Nepalese citizens. Although Nepal is considered a global leader in LGBT rights, the failure to recognise same-sex spouses violates constitutional commitments and human rights obligations put in place between 2007 and 2017. The order from the Supreme Court comes after the case of Adip Pokel and Tobias Vols versus the Ministry of Home Affairs, which was bought in 2022 by a Nepali citizen with a legal marriage to a German man. In an attempt to secure a non-tourist visa, Nepali immigration authorities rejected their claim on the grounds the visa application form only cites husband and wife, while husband and husband remain unrecognised as valid applicants. The justice ruled that, quote, if a foreign national claiming to be married to a Nepali citizen submits a marriage registration certificate and the Nepali citizen confirms the marriage in their visa application, then the issuance of visa to the foreign national cannot be denied. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 4th of May. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch. Hello, hello. And now we're just going to go to a quick track called Your Funeral by Maya. She said she's bad. I said that that's a typo. She called me crazy, so I said that I could like her. Could be a mistake, but baby, you could be my typo. She tried to turn the lights off, her body is a candle. She's so wavy, my baby, like a title. She's so crazy, my baby, like a Cyclone. Don't know how to take it when she's switching up the tempo Yeah, she's getting in my mental But I only like what's bad for me, so I
space that I saved, I left it for ya Fuck you, the curtains got me running through the foyer Thought you could see ya, I'm not what you're looking for Cause we're bad for each other, but I kinda wanna call ya Lace is tied, so how am I so falling? Said you can tell me that I never gave a warning Man, that's the price of faith and babe, I can't afford ya Guess I'll have to forget my bitch from back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. A little uh, retroactive language warning there. Uh, But that is, uh, well, you know, maybe it's my funeral uh, for putting on a song with a couple of little F-bombs. But that was Your Funeral by Maya. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast. And we're going to head to our first segment for today, which is Stories from Inside a Warehouse Strike, where National Union of Workers, Delegates and Strike Leader Kurtley Tuala spoke about the dramatic three-day polar fresh warehouse strike that hamstrung the coal supply chain in July 2016 and brought workers together in a win for fair working conditions. And this is from the archives, highlights from the Union Activism and History Conference from October of 2016. And thanks again to Annie from Stick Together for the audio. Now let's hear from Kurtley Tuala, NUW delegate at the extraordinary strike at... Polar Fresh in Melbourne. Polar Fresh is the cold store central for coals. What happened was a six-month lead-up by the union and strike action for better hourly rates, the removal of labour hire and better conditions. It took only three days for the employers to crumble as their just-in-time policy of business bit them on the bum. Despite the employers having anticipated the strike action by relocating machines and product to other storage sites, Around the city, the strikers were able to picket all of the sites, gain Transport Workers Union members' agreement not to cross the picket line, and basically win most of their demands. Kirtley Tuala. I just want to thank everyone for the opportunity to come and speak today. Um, it's a big privilege, you know, to be asked by you know Ryan and the fellow socialist alternative to you know come and uh, speak, you know, about what what happened at Polar Fresh and to share some of like you know. You know what we did there, and uh, amongst the workers, and you know ourselves as uh, as delegates. 
you know, a bit of a story about how I became a delegate on afternoon shift. Um, I was in Thailand uh, with my missus. <laughs> and, you know, like, we were just, you know, just about to go out in town. And then, you know, then I got a phone call from Heath. And I was like, hey, hey, how's it going, mate? And I was just like, who the hell is this? And it was just like, oh, I'm Heath from the National Union Worker, uh, or Union of Workers. Um, your name is being written down on the, you to become a, a union delegate. And I was just like, bro, someone's stitching me up. And I was like, I was like, bro, I didn't even know anything about this stuff, you know? I thought it was a joke, you know? And then he was like, no, no, you know, are you, um, would you like to become a, a delegate? You know, like I thought, like, oh, yeah, all good. You know, a couple of free days off, you know, like, I was like, sweet, you know, that's me, you know, like, you know? And then, like, you know, because I was always that guy that sat at the back, you know, with the boys, you know, played on my phone, you know, like, too, you know, school, uh, cool for school, you know, one of those people. And, um, you know, I'm sort of like a realist as well, you know, like, I was like, bro, this doesn't involve me. It's got nothing to do with me. You know, I'm too young for this kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, let the old people worry about this, you know? You know, I know it's sad to say, but, you know, like, you know, that's what happened, you know, like, but then, you know, as time went on, and then, like, you know, I got more involved, you know, like, you know, with the, with the union stuff at work, you know, I thought to myself, you can be one or two people, like, a, as a delegate. You could be one, that guy at the back, that does nothing, says nothing, becomes nothing. Or you could be two, you can be active, you can start voicing your opinion about things. And I thought to myself, like, you know, like, man, I can make a change. I can start saying things that could change people's lives. Do you know what I mean? And saying that, you know, that, that all that power comes from back from the team members. Do you know what I mean? I'm just a microphone for them. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I spit all their rhymes. You know, like, you know, like, and like, a lot of the, you know, the team members at work, you know, like, you know, we're basically family. Like, you know, a lot of them, I've got, I've got my brother there. I've got, you know, cousins. You know, so we're all pretty, a uh, real tight-knit group, you know, uh, amongst us, you know, like, on, um, at Polar Fresh. So, like, you know, like, I see what they go through on a daily basis, you know, like, you know, how they have to provide for their family and sort of, you know, scratch ends meet with, uh, you know, a lot of things, you know. A lot of them are sole providers for their family also. So I see that in the, you know, their, their heart and their eyes, you know, like, and I thought to myself, what can I do? Or what can we do as a whole to change that, you know, upset the setup? And I was like, you know, let's, you know, like, we all have that thing in common, you know, like I said it to a lot during that strike, you know, like, I understand people's got a lot of, lot of different priorities in life, you know, like taking care of mortgages, your families, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, car payments and all that stuff. But we all share that same thing in common, and that is a fight to have a better life. Do you know what I mean? That's something that we can all, you know, relate to, you know, as workers. So, like, you know, I always, like, sit to them, you know, like, you know, like, understanding your worth. We've always settled for less. It's not what you want. It's what you deserve as a person, as a human being. Do you know what I mean? I know what I'm worth. Do you? And what are you going to do about it? Are you willing to fight for it? You tell me. Because then we can work together. Do you know what I mean? We're a team here. Do you know what I mean? There's no iron team. Do you know what I mean? We need to work together. You know, I say it's so cliche, you know, like, but those are the little things, you know, like, you know, I don't really know heaps about politics and that's rule. Do you know what I mean? But what I can tell you is that, like, you know, like, if you believe what I believe in, all right, we have the sense of belief together. And from that, I can trust you. You can trust me. We form that loyalty together. And now I think a lot of our workers, we did that. Regardless of what, the, you know, ethnic background you came from, you know, or what kind of religion you have, you know, we came together on that picket line, mm. both men and women. You know, like, and the women were like, you know, the leaders of it. You know what I mean? Like, I always listen to my mom. Those guys were like my mom. You know, like, <laughs> they're like, hey, come watch the desert. Yep, sweet, that's me. You know, like, you know, hey, pick up the rubbish. Yep, no problem. You know, like, but that's you know that trust we have each other. 
you know what I mean? Like that loyalty that I have to the people at work. You know, we've been brought up with those kind of morals and principles, you know, respect your elders, you know what I mean? I still live by that. That's my life. Do you know what I mean? I love my mum and dad, and that's what I'll do anything for them. I see the same people at work the same way, do you know what I mean? I share the same values for them. You know, treat others how you would like to treat us, or you people would like to treat you, you know what I mean? Like, those little simple things. Also about the, you know, the picket line, sorry to, you know, to go on and ramble and stuff like that, but, you know, like, it didn't come, like, to me, like, it didn't, like, become so surreal, like, you know, until, like, you know, I started seeing all the product, all the machinery, get, like, you know, reallocated to different stores and stuff. I was like, bro, you know, game on, bro. Like, you know, like, it's <laughs> you know, bro, it's the crunch time now, you know, like, you know, like, and I was like, looking at the boys and the girls at work, I was like, bro, that's us, man. Let's make a change, man. Do you know what I mean? Don't be like coming out like, you know, like, you know, like, like I was saying to them, someone guy goes, oh, you guys are never going to win that. You guys are never going to accomplish what you guys are set out to do. And I go, how would you know? Like, how would you know? You'll always be left with that what if in your heart. You know, like, what if? What if I went out? You will never know. And I believe what we won, you know, like, obviously, you know, it's not the things that we wanted to, like, you know, you know, get straight away, but we got it eventually. But it's about building that, you know what I mean? Like you don't have the jacuzzi and the, you know, like the pool in the backyard before you build a house, do you know what I mean? <laughs> you got to build the house first, you know, and then get the nice stuff at the back, you know? Like, you know, like, you know, having that and you've got nowhere to sleep, you know, like. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just a realist about that kind of stuff, you know, like. But everyone contributed to that cause. Like, I can't, like, you know, like, it just makes me, like, it's just, like, crazy, bro. Like, I was like, whoa, wow. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, everyone was just, like, Amongst it, you know, people were getting like involved, you know, like people were sharing their stories about like, you know, just their life. Like, you know, there's some people that I've never met from other shifts and they're coming up and, you know, like shaking my hand and telling me like, you know, man, you guys are making a change and I want to be a part of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, and then saying that these are the people that, you know, make a change as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I oftenly said like, you know, this is, this is a sort of like a reminder to these people that, you know, like, we are the engine in this train as workers. Without us, we go nowhere. Do you know what I mean? We like with you know the heart and soul of this, you know, this, this country. Do you know what I mean? And it's about time we step up and take, you know, like, you know, take that back from all those, you know, like big corporations and stuff like that. Take a stand for what's right. Do you know what I mean? Like I know all those things I was saying is cliche, but that's how I speak, you know, like, you know, I don't have all the big, you know, like dictionary words that you know everyone else has, but you know, like I speak from the heart. You know, like, a lot of people started to get emotionally invested in this world as well because we're a family. Do you know what I mean? Like, you want the best for your family, right? You know, like, that's, that's how we are. And I think that when we build that, you know, I'm learning a little bit more and more, you know, each day about, you know, like, the history of, like, you know, workers and stuff like that. And it's doing me good because that's something I can relay back to the members at work. And, like, I started, you know, I'm starting to love what I do. Do you know what I mean? I'm no longer that guy that sits at the back now. I'm the guy that stands up the front and is proud to be that person, you know what I mean? Be that leader, you know? Just for the workers, you know? But besides that, you know, like, I want to give credit where it's due. And, um, you know, my mate here, Ryan, you know, he's the man, bro. <laughs> you know, like, I know he doesn't like it, but I'm just being real, you know, like, he's helped me heaps, you know, like, and, and all the other delegates, like Paul as well, we all bounce off each other, you know, we're always going to the room, agree to disagree, but that's what it's all about. But in saying that, you know, like, I just want to say thank you very much for your guys' time. 
you know, hopefully, you know, what I've, some of what we've said, you know, has resonated in your heart and keeps that fire burning. So thank you very much. And that was Kirtley Tuala, who spoke with, uh, who was speaking uh, from stories from inside a warehouse strike where uh, the National Union of Workers held a dramatic three day polar fresh warehouse strike that hamstrung the coal supply chain in July 2016 and brought workers together in a win for fair work and conditions. So this is from the archives, highlights from the Union Activism and History Conference from October 2016. And once again, our big thanks to Annie from Stick Together for the audio. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori-kids-shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. From a private life so public As the tabloids caught your tears Being photographed How sad, how tragic But it doesn't have to be that way On the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2-4pm on 3CR do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3cr and put them in the books and boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots 
or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.31 in the morning, and we are now joined by Emma Hearn, who is the Associate Legal Director of the National Justice Project, to talk about the New South Wales Supreme Court's decision in early April to uphold the validity of fines issued against protest organizers under COVID restrictions, which has raised some serious questions about the freedom of political expression and the right to protest. Emma, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, Absolute pleasure and really glad to have you on to unpack some of this because it really seems like this is um, slotting into a broader crackdown on on political expression that we've seen, you know, around targeting of the climate justice movement um, and other, you know, different uh, concerns that we have been tracking on 3CR um, for sure across, you know, the past year or so. so in yeah, early absolutely. yeah so in early April uh, the New South Wales Supreme Court ruled that fines issued by the New South Wales police under covid restrictions to two protest organizers so this is an organizer of the 2020 Black Lives Matter rally and an organizer of a protest that year as well to protect trans rights against Mark Latham's trans erasure bill were not invalid so the court identified that this was because they did not breach constitutional protections of freedom of political communication so because this is um, a little bit technical, can you start off by mm-hmm. briefly taking us through the challenge that was mounted against the fines? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our client um, and another client in the Supreme Court proceedings represented a large cohort of people and they had been issued fines for attending a number of protests back in 2020. Um, these, as you said, were protests in relation to Black Lives Matter rally, in relation to trans rights rallies, Uh, and also student union rallies. And importantly, all these protests um, that are captured by this matter were held in a COVID-safe manner and at a time when the New South Wales public health orders actually allowed for other gatherings to take place, so things such as sport games, community sports, shopping centres and even the races. And only a month after the last of these protests, the New South Wales government actually allowed for protests to take place of up to 500 people in their public health orders. So our clients who received those fines in 2020, they sought to challenge the fines in court. Um, And then we took um, with our clients an application to the Supreme Court. And that was that the Public Health Act, which authorised the minister to make those public health orders, um, or the public health orders themselves, were invalid by reason of essentially not allowing for the implied um, freedom of political communication that's in our constitution. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's quite, you know, it's quite interesting that um, on the one side you see this crackdown on protesters uh, through the Public Health Act, while on the other side, you know, there's a big push to to reopen at that time, you know, businesses and to have people gather uh, in, in ways that were definitely less COVID safe than these protests, which were quite explicit about having people, you know, show up and wear masks and, and follow safety protocols. Um, so it seems like this ruling has also raised some serious concerns 
concerns about the myriad ways that political expression can be indirectly suppressed, because as you mentioned, this is through the Public Health Act. So I was hoping you could situate the Supreme Court's decision on this case within a broader statewide crackdown on protests and the kind of precedent that this most recent judgment may set and um, any particular implications that it has for freedom of political expression by, for example, First Nations people and other, you know, marginalized groups. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly concerning um, the more and more limitations and restrictions that have been occurring on protests. Um, and while this particular case is about the restrictions imposed during a pandemic um, and that specific nature of those circumstances, um, it can be a very slippery slope within our democratic society um, and everyone should not be complacent about that. Um, Like you um, referenced, the recent broader crackdown last year, we had laws created in New South Wales imposing harsher restrictions and penalties on protesters. Um, And this case really highlights the need for um, an act to um, ensure that governments need to consider our rights when they're making laws, be that these public health orders, be that um, other restrictions on protests. Um, And in particular, yes, First Nations people, um, LGBTQI plus people, um, they have a a history of police brutality and arrests at their protests. And we've seen that also last year um, begin that slippery slope into um, other protests, uh, climate change, for example. And we have to remember um, this is state-sanctioned. You know, we can't separate out the police from the government that gives them these powers and allow their actions to occur. So, yes, unfortunately, any crackdown on civil society, on our rights, will firstly and more harshly affect minority groups, um, which disproportionately affects those such as First Nations people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, for um, for our listeners uh You'll probably be familiar with the similar crackdown under COVID protocols and COVID restrictions or using that uh, pretense to, uh, yeah, to basically charge Black Lives Matter protest Mm. organizers here uh, who also were quite explicit about organizing a COVID safe event Mm. while also wanting to really draw attention to the fight for black lives in this place. Um, So you've indicated that your clients are going to continue to seek to have these fines dismissed on the basis of another recent judgment by the New South Wales Supreme Court that resulted in a mass dismissal of fines issued during COVID restrictions due to a failure on the police's part to properly spell out an alleged offence. So I understand this process is ongoing, but can you give us any insights into the type of challenge that might be pursued on this basis? Yeah, definitely. So this was a case run by the Redfern Legal Centre here in New South Wales, um, and it was one um, that held that the substance of the fines didn't comply with the relevant legislation. So in New South Wales, the majority of fines that people received during those COVID times simply said, fail to comply with notice direction, section 789. Obviously doesn't mean much to lots of us, and the court found that that didn't comply with the legislation. Um, the um, government and SDRO, since that case, have already withdrawn and refund or refunded um, thousands of those fines. And there are now numerous lawyers uh, calling on the police to similarly withdraw the fines for those who elected to challenge the fines through the courts. And so that case creates the precedent that then allows us lawyers in, in our other cases for our clients to mount the same argument about why those fines should also um, be withdrawn. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, it is uh, 
I guess this this broader conversation fits into uh, some concerns that I've been thinking about uh, in relation to the restriction of a lot of uh, discussion about freedom of political expression within a sort of more reactive frame of identifying, you know, where, whether the fines were technically invalid. But I was hoping we could also discuss the necessity of a proactive um, human and civil rights protections mm. in New South Wales and uh, potentially at the federal level as well. So what difference would, this, would a state or even federal level Human Rights Act make in a case like this? And do you see one on the horizon for New South Wales? Um, Yeah, great question. I mean, I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, The need for both state um, and Victoria and even Queensland have done that. Um, But for New South Wales and and particularly federally as well, um, to have a a Human Rights Act, um, this case obviously highlights that. Despite what many people may think, and probably because of the media we're exposed to from the US, um, in Australia we don't actually have any rights per se. Um, this freedom of political communication that we've been talking about is also only an implied right that the courts have found from our constitution. So it's therefore extremely necessary for a human rights type act to be implemented. Um, For this case or or other areas of erasure of our civil rights or the rights of those in minority groups particularly, uh, such an act would mean we can hold governments to account Um, not only when they are creating laws, so they must then consider other rights. In this case, when the minister was making the public health orders, he would have had to have considered the right to political communication. Um, But also such an act would mean that the public and the courts can hold governments and the laws to account um, and to make sure that those laws or policies are compatible with our human rights. Um, I'm not sure how far off one is for New South Wales, Um, I'm hopeful there is certainly a campaign around that. Um, And if you happen to have any listeners in from New South Wales, I really encourage them to follow Human Rights Act for New South Wales, um, which is campaigning for this. Yeah, and we'll definitely have to to keep on top of that on Thursday breakfast because I'd be keen to see how it progresses. And uh, I know that uh, in, for example, in Queensland, um, you know, climate justice protesters have been able to use the Human Rights Act um, and uh, have have appealed to uh, human rights uh, bases to challenge, uh, you know, coal mining. And I think that has been really powerful uh, as a way to sort of frame it in terms of collective goods and collective rights rather than having to respond to technicalities in legislation that already exists. Um, Absolutely. And so uh, finally, where can listeners find out a bit more about the issues that we've discussed as they continue to unfold? And is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Um, Yes. So um, National Justice Project, uh, who I work for, you can follow our socials or sign up to our newsletter. Um, There's also updates about these issues and many other human rights work that we do. Um, Also encourage Redfern Legal Centre and the Environmental Defenders Office. Uh, They are actually... Um, have a case against those protest laws we were speaking about earlier that were implemented last year in New South Wales. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to, you know, I think that, that flows into this discussion importantly is, you know, the, the worrying news about this worldwide. In the UK uh, last night, we saw they implemented protest laws um, seemingly in relation to the coronation um, but the the harshness of the penalties they've imposed, um, unlimited maximum fine and up to six-month prison sentence. But the most worrying thing to end on is that 
police will be able to stop and search protesters they suspect are setting out to cause disruption. I mean, the the extent of that um, power to police is just uh, unimaginable um, to me. I, I just think it's a really worrying thing that we're seeing, not just in Australia and New South Wales, but worldwide as well. Yeah, that is horrifying. The idea that, um, you know, preemptive policing has mm. just become so normalized, um, I think is a really good thing to draw attention to um, and something that we have to be really mindful of as we fight against, you know, local issues here because, um, you know, as, as we've seen uh, across the, the pandemic, uh, there has been this expansion of police powers, expansion of discretionary sort of powers to... Um, you know, to further and further encroach on people's civil rights and human rights. And so, yeah, just coming back to the importance of having a Human Rights Act and, you know, some sort of enforcement at both the New South Wales state government, but also at the federal level is is just so vital. So we look forward to seeing how this progresses and, and wish you all the very best with the case. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Priya. Thank you. And that was Emma Hearn, Associate Legal Director of the National Justice Project, who joined us to discuss the New South Wales Supreme Court's decision in early April to uphold the validity of fines issued against protest organisers under COVID restrictions, which has raised some serious concerns about the freedom of political expression and the right to protest in New South Wales. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.45 AM. Hannah Panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. And now we will play a segment of this week's episode of Diaspora Blues, a May Day special with former 3CR presenter Hope Matumbu, and Hope speaks with Ayan about issues of gender, work and parenting from her perspective as a community nurse working in an Aboriginal community-controlled health organisation who is returning to work after parental leave. Catch Diaspora Blues on 3CR on Mondays from 2.30 to 3pm. On the show today, I have a friend, uh, one of my good friends, Hope, And Hope was also one of the presenters of Tuesday Breakfast. She is a community nurse. So I'm excited to have her, not just as a friend, but as someone who's very knowledgeable, someone who's very thoughtful and has a lot of amazing ideas to share. With that, welcome to Diaspora Blues, Hope. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ayan. And I've got a plus one here. (laughs) So Hope has her gorgeous daughter, Sana, with us. As I mentioned, you are a community nurse. What does a community nurse do? 
Well, um, yeah, community nursing is very broad, um, but I work um, in a clinic uh, for an Aboriginal community-controlled health organisation um, called Wadharong Aboriginal Health Service. Um, and my role is almost just like working in a GP clinic, so supporting GPs um, and supporting community, um, you know, taking blood, um, doing various, you know, clinical tasks, um, ECGs, that sort of thing, but also other things, you know, health promotion, you know, educating people around diabetes, making sure that they understand their health needs, maybe supporting people when they've been discharged from hospital and they need maybe ongoing care in the community. So changing the bandages if they need that or any sort of um, post-discharge care or preventing people from ending up in the hospital, you know, um, if it's things to do with their medication management or maybe if they have like some sort of acute episode. But um, we can sort of get it under control to prevent them from ending up in hospital. So lots of different things. And of course, immunizations, immunizations of different age groups, including um, babies and kids and the elderly. So it's a wide range of um, interesting things uh, for community nursing. So prior to having Sana, what did your day look like? Oh, my day could... My day was very sometimes busy, sometimes quiet, but you never use the Q word when you're on shift or else it will end up like, you know, even busier. But it was always different things, you know, people either walking in or people who had appointments. Um, and and so, again, that mix of like clinical tasks. So actually, you know, um, either, you know, taking blood, giving injections, giving medications or um, doing the advocacy, you know, answering phone calls, answering questions, you know, um, educating either community members or educating actual services as well, because other services may not um, have that sensitivity as well to working with people. Um, so, you know, it looked like a whole bunch of different things. And that's why I really love um, community health, because it's, it's, it's a really good mix of like clinical things uh, and also sort of, I don't know, quote unquote, administration but yeah and what does your day look like now <laughs> um my day at the moment you know since going on maternity leave is um I guess like a different kind of, of workload, um, just looking after this baby and, and, and looking after life, I suppose. Um, waking up, um, you know, every two to three hours in the middle of the night um, and, and um, yeah, just being on the other side of healthcare and on the other side of needles, actually. Um, all of the immunizations that I used to give to kids and the reassuring that I used to give to mothers now, I'm on the other side of that, so that's really funny. Um, and, and lots of nappies, nappy changes, and, and yeah, just a whole new different world, I suppose. And not every day is the same, but sometimes every day seems to be the same, yeah. I also love because I made it a point of having Sana in the background. I think it's important for people to know that, you know, as a mother, you're juggling a million things. You're saying yes to interviews with 3CR and you're also looking after the bub. Um, she's currently glued to you at the moment and I think listeners can hear her. Um, so you go back to work when? I go back to work in January 2024, so that will have given me pretty much like a, almost like a, a, a complete year um, of maternity leave. Um, 
24, the organization is quite generous or different organizations are different, but 24 weeks of uh, half pay with my current organization. And that was after I used up all of my annual leave. And then of course, just the, um, I've just, it was difficult to do, but I've just qualified with, you know, Centrelink um, to get, you know, the um, uh, parental leave paid through my organization. Uh, and then I think there'll just be a few weeks where I'm, I'm unpaid, but, you know, um, a full year. And what concerns do you have about returning to work? Concerns around childcare, I suppose. Um, availability of spots was a big thing. And so some people made me feel a little bit anxious because they were like, oh, you should have found a place when she was still in the womb. And so I think when, uh, like a week after she was born, we went to all of these childcare places. Like some of them were really filled up, had waiting lists for like two years, but we found one that we're, we're happy with, you know, just trying to navigate all of that. Um, and of course, I'm not really going to go back because I was on four days a week, um, but I'm only going to go back two days. But that was something that my manager suggested, which I appreciated, because I think it's got to be a slow transition for mother and bub to, to get back into it. Um, but of course, the affordability of it as well. Um, at the moment, the spot, the place where we have found, I really haven't really crunched the numbers, but I know that childcare affordability is a big thing. So I don't really know how much it costs at the moment, but I know that it's going to be most of my two days a week wages. And so balance of like, you know, going up more days or less days and the cost benefit of all of that from a monetary perspective. Um, but that being said, I also do understand that childcare educators, um, early childhood educators aren't paid that much. So the whole sector is sort of suffering and under-resourced in itself. So all of those things, just thinking about my place in there, but also making sure that people in there are, are compensated because, you know, childcare doesn't just help me return to work, but it also helps her sort of like develop, the baby develop. And we do know that um, the learning that people have like within their within their formative years actually um, has a lot predicts like a lot about their outcomes later on so early childhood education is important and the quality of that is important and you do want to pay for that but at the same time it's like you know the money and the support systems to sort of facilitate that um, where do they come from so it's like a, a huge sort of balance yo tyrone here you're listening to 3cr community radio so for folks who don't know you, you are, you are South African, you're, so you're black, um, you're a mother. I'd love for you to discuss how these intersecting identities play out in work in terms of, you know, how you're treated, um, the kind of work that you do and just the interactions that you have. I think that I'm really lucky to be working um, in an Aboriginal community controlled organization um, because that is a black organization. Um, and even though I come from a settler background, um, my experiences as, as a black woman and specifically as a black healthcare worker are quite different and than I would experience if I was like in a mainstream, um, more predominantly white organization. Um, and this area that I live in, Wadawurrung country in Geelong, it is very, um, it's a very white um, sort of place. You know, I remember when um, 
Sana was first born, so she's she's biracial. But when you look at her, she looks like a white child. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember when we were leaving the hospital, there was a, an admin worker who stopped me. And she was like, have you been checked out properly? Has someone checked your wristbands? And my partner was two feet ahead of me, like, you know, a white guy. And I had the baby in my arms. And I was like, yep, yep. And she just interrogated me until she was like, oh, what bed number were you in? And I was like, I was in 13B. And she was like, oh, okay. And that's when she sort of let me go. And that was like my first experience of just like the racial microaggression of like, is this child yours? And that questioning. And I found a lot more of that more within just white spaces or people being like, oh, you know, she's not the caramel child that we hope for or that sort of thing. Yeah, lots of comments like that. But everyone at work like community is just so happy for me like it's a different feeling and like that you know people sent flowers from the organization everyone's like when are you going to bring your baby in and honestly I think like no one would bat an eyelid if I just brought my baby to work one day like someone an auntie or an uncle would want to hold the baby and that's the kind of atmosphere that working for a black organization and a community controlled organization is like and I know that if one day if childcare maybe fell through or something happened um, there's a lot of kinship care that happens within that organization and you know I'd only worked there for a bit over a year when I got pregnant and had my baby. I know a lot of other nurses and specifically a white colleague who was given a very bad time in terms of like her contract and whether she could come back to work. Her manager even said something very derogatory, a male manager that, you know, sort of said to her, he cut her hours and sort of said to her, maybe you should have thought about keeping your legs closed. Not in the same organization. Not in the same organization, a different organization, a private hospital, mind you. Um, And this was a white woman who said this to me and she's been having a very difficult time in terms of like, um, um, you know, getting like parental leave and all of this stuff because of the way that her contract was set up. But I can honestly say um, that it's family first in the organization that I work for because it is black, it is community controlled. Um, And I think that a lot of the things um, that Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander people have experienced in terms of... um, the separation of families and that sort of thing. Um, they don't want that to happen to to staff, whether staff are uh, are, are settlers um, or whether staff are, are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And I think that I'm in a very privileged position to benefit from that and for no one to look at me and sort of say, you've kind of cost us or something like that um, by going off and having a child. It's nothing like that at all. Uh, it's more like, when are you coming back? When are we going to see our niece? And this is how everyone is already talking about her, you know, come and let them see uncle such and such or auntie such and such. And these are all sort of like um, professional people that are working there, but it, it's got that family element as well. And that is such an important thing um, because a lot of the time when we talk about um the workplace and like maybe um, caring roles, you know, it's delineated more into like this labor workforce. When are you going back to work? When are you going to go back and make money and that sort of thing? But um, there's more of like a melt where it's an understanding as well that um, being a parent is also, you know, contributing to to community, to community life and that sort of thing. And you can't really undo, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense to sort of say there's a labor workforce and then there's like the parenting workforce and sort of keeping those things separated. It's all mixed into one. So I think that I'm very lucky in terms of 
being a mother, being a, a nursing professional, but also having that backing of um, of a black community controlled health health organization, because. Um, other health organizations where they're supposed to be caring for people in in workforces it's you know it's never really like that and nursing just like early childhood education is is a sector where um it's more women-led where it's like a lot of women who are doing a, a you know majority and, and brunt of the work workforces like nursing um, which are like in uh, the area of caring is similar to um, early childhood education in that it's mostly women who are bearing doing a lot of that caring work. Um, and so it's really refreshing to have an organization that backs you when you become a mother and that recognizes um, that that mothering is another you know area of work. So they're really like supporting that area of your life. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defense mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. struggling with drugs, alcohol, gambling or food, or concerned about somebody who is, tune in to The Living Free Show on 3CR at 1pm every Thursday. I don't know how I got there, but and I couldn't stop it. I had stopped expecting that anybody cared. Never enough. I'm never enough. It's never enough. He's never enough. That was the confusion. Tune in to Living Free, stories of recovery from addictive behaviour. Thursdays at 1pm on 3CR or listen at 3CR on digital radio or podcasts and live streaming on 3cr.org.au Being able to centre myself and be okay in myself and turn my world around Living free And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.02 in the morning. And we are now joined by George Congere, uh, who is from the Save Preston Market Action Group, to talk about a recent report from the Victorian Planning Authority, which has recommended significant protection of the Preston Market Precinct and what this victory means for the fight against private developers as it continues. So George has been involved with the campaign since its inception in 2021 and lives in Reservoir with his partner and two daughters. George, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Priya, for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is a really exciting development to talk about. Um, 
And so maybe we'll just jump straight into it. So at the beginning of last month, the Victorian Minister for Planning, Sonia Kilkenny, released a report by the Victorian Planning Authority's Project Standing Advisory Committee on the draft Preston Market Precinct Structure Plan, which has recommended much stronger protections of the market as a historical and community site than those that were proposed in the redevelopment planned by Preston Market Development's PTY LTD, who happen to own the lion's share of the Preston Market Precinct. So can you tell us a bit about the nature of the protections that have been recommended by the committee and the implications that they'll likely have for these redevelopment plans? Yeah, so the protections are, there are a number of different um, aspects uh, recommended by the committee. Essentially, the main thing is that they said that the market uh, is very important to the community and should not be, um, should not be demolished. It must be substantially retained. So that's the number one um, Number one result is they said no to the demolition of the market as it was proposed by uh, the Victorian Planning Authority and the developers. Mm. Um, it also says no to 2,200 apartments, which is what the developers wanted to build. Mm-hmm. So um, it recommends around 1,200 apartments. Um, and there's also a few other uh, few other things in there. Obviously, it's, it's a very long report. It's 271 pages long. Um, one, you know, there's going to be... They recommend slightly less parking and things like that. But essentially, the market must be um, preserved and the number of apartments is going to be cut down. And that's going to be done through um, a number of different mechanisms, including a heritage overlay and some special development rules um, and so on. So it's, it's a very good result for um, for us, really. We weren't expecting such a good result from the Standing Advisory Committee report. Mm. But it's still, but there's still quite a lot of wiggle room within the report. So, um, you know, it'll it'll be, will will it remains to be seen how the minister uh, implements the report. So we'll wait to see what that says. But as far as the developers go, I mean, they're very unhappy about it because it um, it cuts significantly into all of their plans, um, and and so they've uh, you know they've started a significant counter campaign. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean. Uh, it, it is definitely a testament to the organizing that the community has been doing at the grassroots level to, uh, you know, to oppose this this massive redevelopment um, that that, you know, the Victorian Planning Authority has now had to seriously take those considerations uh, into account. Because when we spoke last, uh, you know, it was still very much this piecemeal, um, you know, veneer of consultation that was actually, um, you know, sort of twisting the community's words, the idea of retaining the spirit of the market without retaining some of that physical space. And, you know, the actual community connections um, seem to have been much more substantially considered here. Um, But obviously, the fight is not over. And people who have had the chance to visit the market recently may have seen some postering and flyering that is called for support to save the traders at the Preston Market. So this is not the same thing as the Save the Preston Market campaign. And you've identified that this counter campaign is actually backed by the developers. So what's going on here? What's the end game? Well, what they're doing is, <clears throat> pardon me, they have, uh, they've, well, they've hired these, um, these spin doctors <clears throat> from a, a high-level spin doctors from a, uh, a company or a group called the York Park Group, which has... Um, ex-advisors to prime ministers and, and so forth in in there. And they are trying to um, run a disruptive campaign to confuse the community about what's happening. So they've started their Save the Traders campaign, their so-called Save the Traders campaign, where um, what they're claiming is that if they can't knock down the market and rebuild what they want, then that's going to be the end of the traders. 
because um, they can't sustain the traders. So they're sort of claiming that they are the ones who have the interests of the traders at heart by wanting to save them by building this new so-called market. But the truth is of the situation is that um, it's the owners of Preston Market Developments, you know, uh, who have been uh, treating the traders terribly for a number of years, a long time before um, our campaign started. Um, they have been increasing rents relentlessly, reducing leases uh, to, you know, so that people can't run their businesses. If you, if you have a business, you need a, a strong lease so that people, you know, that your business has stability. But at the moment, a lot of the traders are on month-by-month leases. And they've also been um, allowing the market to get into a state of, uh, you know, get disrepair. Mm. So there are a lot of things that they've been doing um, which have been damaging the traders this whole time. Um, and then even during the Standing Advisory Committee hearing last year, where we got this good result, uh, we were the only ones to say, hey, look, none of, none of you are talking about the traders, and the traders say this, and we told them what the traders had said, which is that they have, um, you know, their, their business conditions are terrible and things like that. Um, so it's it's incredibly cynical of them, really, to be running this, say, the traders campaign, trying to confuse people. Um, and, yeah, it's just very, very uh, sly and cynical. Um Thankfully, though, it looks like most people can see right through it. Uh, everyone we've talked to so far, not many people are that confused by it. Certainly no one's been taken in by it. Um, that There's no one that's just been like, goodness me, like, yes, we do need to save the traders. The only way to save them is by knocking down the market um, mm-hmm. from the community, that is. And, um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's a very unpleasant kind of um, situation where we're having to sort of clarify information and um, really sort of push hard to get information out there. So we have been holding stalls uh, every Saturday recently and have been um, leafleting in, in within the market mm-hmm. uh, to try and, because they're, they're handing out leaflets and things like that in the market. And um, the developer himself has been there as well, trying to sort of convince people that uh, what he's doing is for the good of everybody. But um, yeah, we've been in there sort of spreading the the, the the actual truth about what's going on with the market. We've been get, getting the police called off, uh, the police called on us um, on occasion, not because we've been disruptive, but just because they don't want anyone to um, be countering what they're, what they're trying to tell Jeez. the people who go to the market. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty it's, it's pretty unfortunate, but um, it's we have it's not really phased us. We're, we're still, we continue our, our campaign. Um, we're getting information out there and telling people the truth about what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it is just, you know, once you actually get down to the the core demands, um, on the one hand, you have you guys saying, you know, saving the market as an important site, you know, necessarily means also saving the traders and having better conditions for them to, you know, conduct their businesses. On the other side, they're saying we'll save the traders by knocking down and rebuilding the market in uh, a much tinier space so i'm not it's like quite clearly counterintuitive um i'll, I'll just interrupt you there as well Bri. i forgot to tell you that um that the the, the the owners actually released a press release mm-hmm. saying that they will they they like a threatening press release essentially saying they will increase the rent server and reduce everybody's leases as, as much as possible if they don't get their way so at the same time that they're running the save the traders campaign they're publishing uh, straight up threats, which they've removed now. They've, they've taken these press release press release down, uh, 
promising to damage the traders if they don't get their way. So it's, they're in a bit of a shambles as well, but their message is, is terrible. Yeah, it's, it is just, you know, wild. And I, I've, I've, you know, I've seen this um, as somebody who, who does my shopping at the Preston Market every week. Um, I did, uh, you know, approach someone who was flyering uh, for this Save the Traders campaign. I did ask them about it. And it is true that, um, you know, it's quite unclear uh, when you when you talk to people. I was like, are you related to the Save the Preston Market campaign? You know, what what's the deal with this? And it was a very sort of ambiguous kind of answer. But, you know, when you look at the sort of leaflet, it is quite clear that it it's not – um, you know, it's not really running the same line as the Save the Preston Market campaign, right. which is really, um, you know, about the value of the space for the community, um, which includes, you know, businesses that have become an integral part of the community that trade in the market. Um, and also, as you said, like for, for people who do frequently visit the market, you'll see there are some uh, empty stalls, parts that are run down. And it's, you know, this, this is a choice on, on behalf of the uh, developers uh, to not, you know, maintain the market um, in the way that it could be as a thriving community space, which it still continues to be despite, you know, being uh, left to go into disrepair in some places. Um, so... Save the Preston Market uh, proposes as well that the Preston Market precincts should be publicly acquired in order to further guarantee protection of the site. So can you take us through this proposal and what it might mean in terms of preserving the precinct as a centre of community life in Preston? Yeah, so that was our, um, that's, yeah, that's, as you say, our, our core demand is that um, is the market be publicly acquired. Uh, we came up with that because, you know, all, all of the other major um, and important markets in, in Melbourne, uh, like, you know, Victoria Market and um, the South Melbourne Market, Dandenong Market. These markets um, uh, they are they are also publicly owned, and they have a much more stable um, situation and um, and a much more sort of a much more guarantee of their continued existence. And if their ex- existence is threatened, the community has a lot more sort of power to sort of uh, get involved and and sort of you know protect them but as it is Preston market it's on it's on private land and so the billionaire owners believe that they can do whatever they want because that's their house and uh, I, I believe that the, the the owner is actually literally told um, our volunteers this is my house um, and so yes our proposals for public acquisition we believe as well I mean that the conduct the how the owners have conducted themselves over the past couple of months, it only reinforces that public acquisition is the answer to this situation because what, what they're doing is, is, is their, their way is being threatened. So they are absolutely trashing it. Um, and they can kind of do that because they, because they own it and mm. they're, they're the private owners. So public acquisition is the best way. Um, we have been asking the minister and the state government to investigate public acquisition as a potential... Um, as a potential solution. So um, obviously that's what we want, but we would like them to, you know, produce a report or some sort of um, Mm. investigation into how that would happen, how much it would, you know, how much it would cost, how the market would be run afterwards, all this kind of stuff so that we can um, have a, we can have a discussion about the concrete idea. But so far, um, the, the state government has, not, has not wanted to do that. Um, they haven't even really wanted to consider it, which is why we think that they really, they haven't really shown that it's not a good idea. They just don't like the idea for, you know, political reasons, uh, obviously, because, um, you know, they have, they have relationships with developers 
um, all over the state. And so the public acquisition of, a, of developers' property, um, you know, won't go down well. But we think that with these new changes that the ministers announced, um, the owners already last year and said that if these changes go ahead to what they're allowed to do, then their project will be unviable. So they've told us that if they can't build 2,200 apartments and demolish 80% of the market, then they're not going to make enough money to go ahead. And the minister said, well, you can't do that. So basically, all that's left really is for the, the developers to say, well, OK, well, we can't do what we want. We're going to have to sell this land. And this is when we're saying, well, the state government really should, instead of letting another buy, uh, developer buy it, and we can go through this whole circus again in five or ten years, the state government should buy it and make Preston Market into, uh, you know, the publicly owned people's market that it, that it kind of that it kind of functions as right now. Yeah. So it should be formally put into that situation where it's publicly owned. It can be treated and maintained as a public space. Absolutely. And as you've, as you've said, there's already widespread precedent for this to, to happen with other, uh, other markets, as you said, with, Vic, uh, you know, Queen Vic market and, um, uh, and the South Melbourne markets as well. Um, and it is really, you know, it, it seems like if the, if the Victorian Planning Authority is willing to take the community's considerations into account to the extent that they are, you know, proposing these heritage overlays and um, a substantial reduction in the amount of proposed redevelopment and the nature of proposed redevelopment, um, then surely there's space to also entertain the value of public acquisition of that land to actually, you know, preserve the space and to to revitalize it, um, you know, in, in a way that the the private uh, developers have not been interested in because they've been pushing this plan. Um, so the campaign to save the Preston market has also been a really great example of grassroots community organizing that successfully worked towards achieving a goal for the public good. And even though, as we've said, the fight isn't over yet, what lessons have you learned through this process, including about the effectiveness of local community action? Yeah, well, it's been, it's been such an inspiring uh, thing to be a part of. You know, um, I've met people from all over the community who I would never have ended up speaking to just because we, you know, um, apart from maybe at the market, it might have, like, you know, bumped into someone and had a conversation with people. But um, but just, you know, it, it's been an, an incredible bringing together of people. And, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the lessons, I, I really think that the lesson is that if you if you can get organised and, um, and approach, think about your approach, uh, so to sort of uh, approach the, the issue in a way which kind of um, makes sense, politically as well as um, to the community, then, yeah, there's a lot of space for these kind of community campaigns because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of community space which is under threat, really. And I've been reading about it, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, apart from Preston Market, there's been the Tote, um, the Curtain, these are pubs. There, there's another pub in Clifton Hill which recently um, escaped demolition via mm. community pressure. Um, but, yeah, if, if, if people get together... And and have something that they care about, and yeah, they can really they can really uh, make a big difference um, as, as to the outcomes. But it, it does require a certain amount of persistence and um, determination because often these things take a long time, mm. and um, the initial energy can can wane if you don't plan for that. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, I, I definitely think that these things are are very viable, and, that, and I encourage people to sort of to to, to 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 do it if there's something in your community that 
is happening that's being done to your community um, without your sort of consent or consultation and not in your interest, very importantly, then, yeah, I really encourage people to, to, to organise to fight against them. And, and if people want to um, ask us about how we've done this so far and, and what the, the ups and downs and pitfalls and, you know, celebrations have been, then, yeah, we'd be more than happy to, to talk to, to people about it. Yeah, that's, that sounds fantastic because, I mean, something else that I, I find so vital about this space is that unlike so many other public spaces or, you know, so-called public spaces that, that we have that are open throughout the day, uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily, you know, pay to play. People can go and just hang out at the market. They don't necessarily have to buy anything. So it's also a space for community building and a space for people to connect without necessarily having to having to shop you know um and i think that is like having those spaces where people can come together um is just like such a core part of you know retaining community strength and community solidarity um but also it seems to me that a a lesson out of this is you know people are going to the market anyway they have a vested you know interest in maintaining um, a space that is valuable to them as members of the community um so if there are these kinds of issues in your community you know as as georgia said it's it's not impossible um and you certainly can um you know, get some big wins if you work together with other members of your community who are similarly concerned. Um, so finally, George, where can listeners find out more about the next about next week's meeting um, and get involved in the fight to save the Preston market? Yeah, so next week we're having a public meeting at the Shire Hall, um, at the Preston Shire Hall, which is at 288 Gower Street. It's just in the in the council, the Darabin Council uh, sort of offices there. Um, we've hired a hall. And uh, we're going to be discussing what's gone on so far. Uh, so the minister's announcement that, that she's going to take steps to protect the market and what that means, um, what the standing advisory committee report actually said versus what the developers are claiming, that, that you know, what the developers claim is the truth, all of this kind of stuff. And we're going to be discussing public acquisition um, as a way forward to save the market. So we're inviting everybody. There's going to be a lot of people there, and we really encourage everyone who... It has been following this and is interested in, in Preston Market to come along. It's at 6.30 next Friday, the 12th of May at uh, the Preston Shire Hall. And, um, yeah, so please come down. It, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be really great. It'll be a really fantastic event. Um, and uh, failing that, you can go and um, take a look at our Facebook page. It's probably the most updated uh, source of information. We regularly update that every few days with... Um, what's been going on and there's been a lot going on so there's a a lot of um, information on there Um, that's um, Save the Preston Market on Facebook page if you just just type that into Facebook you'll find it and then you can also go to the website savetheprestonmarket.com that's a little bit lagging behind on its um, how updated it is but it still has all the the, the core information if you need to if you just want to read about what's happening Um, but yeah those are the three main things but the the main thing I I would encourage people to do is come to our public meeting on Friday the 12th at 6.30 at the Preston Shire Hall. This will be really fantastic. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much, George. And encourage people to get along. I'm going to try and get along myself. Um, and, yeah, keep up the fight. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Priya. And, and I really appreciate the support your show has given us over the last couple of years. Yeah, no problem. Um, have a great day. You too. Cheers.
And that was George Cangere from the Save the Press and Market Action Group, who joined us to talk about a recent report from the Victorian Planning Authority, which has recommended significant protection of the press and market precinct. And we discussed what this means for the fight against private developers and also talked a little bit about how the Preston Market Action Group has been an excellent example of grassroots community organizing. And George has been involved with the campaign since its inception in 2021 and lives in Reservoir with his partner and two daughters. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're going to go to another little track before we wrap up our show today. So this one is Superstar by Sicko.
And that was Superstar by Sicko. And you are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. It's currently 826. And yeah, we just thought we'll go through a rundown of what we've spoken about today. Take it away. That's me. Um, So... (laughs) Today, we started off uh, bringing you back some more May Day-related content from the archives. So this is Stories from Inside a Warehouse Strike, where National Union of Workers delegate and strike leader Kurtley Tuala spoke about the dramatic three-day Polar Fresh warehouse strike that hamstrung the coal supply chain in July 2016 and brought workers together in a win for fair work and conditions. This is from the archives, highlights from the Union Activism and History Conference, October 2016. Once again, thanks so much to Annie from Stick Together for the audio. And a reminder that in 2019, in November, the National Union of Workers and United Voice merged to become the United Workers Union. Um, Inez. And then we heard from Emma Hearn, who is the Associate Legal Director of the National Justice Project. And they joined us to discuss the New South Wales Supreme Court's decision in early April to uphold the validity of fines issued against protest organisers under COVID restrictions, raising serious concerns about freedom of political expression and the right to protest. After that, we replayed a segment of this week's episode of Diaspora Blues, which was a May Day special with former 3CR presenter Hope Mathumbu. And Hope spoke with Ayan about issues of gender, work and parenting from her perspective as a community nurse working in an Aboriginal community-controlled health organisation and who is returning to work after parental leave. And just a reminder, you can catch Diaspora Blues on 3CR on Mondays from 2.30 to 3 p.m. And lastly, we heard from George Conjure from the Save the Preston Market Action Group to talk about a recent report from the Victorian Planning Authority recommending a significant protection of the Preston Market Precinct and what this means for the fight against private developers. George has been involved with the campaign since its inception in 2021 and lives in Reservoir with his partner and two daughters. And just want to give you guys a final reminder to have your say on the Melbourne Safe Injecting Room trial. And you can head to engage.vic.gov.au forward slash MSIS. Have your say. Uh, Really important. It's an incredibly crucial thing for our community. Um, And if you want to find out more, head to North Richmond Community Health to find out about how the trial's gone there and the important difference it has made. We'll catch you next week on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. But until then, have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.